Thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, we're starting a few minutes late, but, um, but we're all here, and we're happy to see you. In fact, I'm very happy to see such a big crowd, given the interesting competing sessions that we have at this time. Um, so this is the panel on um, costs and benefits, or benefits and costs, if you're an economist. Um, so I'll, I'm Susan Dudley, and I'll just kick things off. Um, Congress has um, made thousands of delegations of regulatory authority to scores of administrative agencies with widely varying standards for making those decisions and no regular process for bringing coherence to the whole. So the economics profession has long proffered benefit-cost analysis, um, or BCA, and that's how you're going to hear me referring to it, even though you might hear the lawyers on the panel calling it cost-benefit analysis. Um, and we can talk about that if you care what, to know why economists refer to it differently than lawyers. Um, so economists have proffered it as the best tool for um, ensuring that regulatory decisions that wield that delegated authority responsibly and wisely. So the idea behind it is that um, agencies should balance the benefits and costs of alternative approaches, evaluate them of alternative approaches, and seek choose the approach that maximizes the excess of benefits over the costs, or the net benefits. And presidents from both parties have, for over four decades, endorsed that and as the preferred way to do it, and um, required agencies to submit their regulations, actually this is only for three decades, to the Office of Management and Budget, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, or OIRA. In fact, Executive Order 12866, which President Clinton signed in 1993, was affirmed by both George W. Bush and by President, and by Barack Obama, who have widely differing views on what regulatory policy should be, but they all agreed on that as the paradigm. Um, yet, it's, it's not consistently applied. And in part, that's because authorizing legislation often either is silent on whether agencies should do that or is written so that it prohibits a balancing of benefits and costs. Um, agencies compliant, independent agencies compliance, um, executives don't apply to the independent regulatory agencies. Um, such as a lot of the financial regulatory agencies. And compliance with the executive orders is not something that courts can review. It, uh, executive orders always say this is not judicially reviewable. So Congress is considering bills now that would address this by ver in various ways, by codifying the executive order requirements, um, making sure that they apply more broadly, and um, asking that they be judicially reviewable. And um, Senators Portman, Warner, and Collins are introducing a bill, it's the um, Independent Agency Regulatory Analysis Act, that would subject those independent agencies, like some of the financial regulatory agencies that I think we're going to hear more about from our panelists today. But the question still remains, is benefit-cost analysis a silver bullet? And if not, what procedural or analytical changes might improve its usefulness as a policy development tool, and I guess a policy evaluation tool? So we have a terrific panel of legal and policy experts that will explore those questions and examine the appropriate role for Congress, the legislature, and the executive branch. Um, the proper scope of, of BCA, and when analysis should be conducted and by whom. 
Um, so before I introduce them, I'll introduce myself. I'm Susan Dudley. I'm the director of the George Washington University Regulatory Studies Center and a distinguished professor of practice in the Trachtenberg School of Public Policy and Public Administration. I have achieved the distinguished status despite the fact that I cover all the grays in my hair. <laughs> um, I served as administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs from 2007 to 2009, and I'm gonna put in a plug here, I am the vice president of the Society for Benefit Cost Analysis. Now you may not have known there was such a thing, but I'm happy to tell you more about it. We have a journal, and um, I welcome you all to come to our meetings and, um, and participate. All right, so the, the panel that we have here, it, it's a panel of underachievers. Um, as I was looking at their bios, I, I'm gonna give you abbreviated bios for all of them, but I did notice that all the lawyers were editors-in-chief of their law reviews when they were in law school. Um, and we're, I'll introduce them alphabetically, although we're gonna go in a slightly different order. Um, Boyden Gray, C. Boyden Gray, is the founding partner of Boyden Gray and Associates and a leading expert on regulation. He worked in the White House for 12 years, first as counsel to the vice president during the Reagan administration, where he was responsible for President Reagan's executive order on regulatory oversight and benefit cost analysis, and he was counsel to the Presidential Task Force on Regulatory Relief. He also served as White House counsel to President George H.W. Bush and ambassador to the European Union during the George W. Bush administration. And between these appointments, um, he practiced law for 25 years at Wilmer, Cutler, and Pickering. Um, next, actually, next, I'm gonna do this in the order that we'll hear from them. Next, we're actually gonna hear from Dick Morgenstern, who's a senior fellow at Resources for the Future, um, and he's our sole economist on the panel, uh, but equally distinguished, as you'll see. His research focuses on the economic analysis of environmental issues with an emphasis on cost, benefits, evaluation, and the design of environmental policies, especially economic incentives. Um, prior to working at joining RFF, he held senior positions at the State Department, um, where he participated in the negotiations for the Kyoto Protocol, and at the Environmental Protection Agency, where he served for 12 years acting as Deputy Administrator, Assistant Administrator for Policy Planning and Evaluation, and serving as Director of the Office of Policy Analysis. And then we'll hear from Michael Livermore, who is an Associate Professor of Law at University of Virginia. He's an expert in administrative law, environmental law, cost-benefit analysis. I'm reading from his bio, that's why the order is wrong. Um, and Executive Review of Agency Decision-Making. Prior to joining the faculty there, he spent five years as the founding executive director of the Institute for Policy Integrity at NYU School of Law. He's published numerous books, chapters, and articles on administrative law and BCA, with a special focus on the role of interest groups and public choice dynamics in shaping the application and methodology of cost-benefit analysis, and we'll hear a little bit about that from him today. And then, finally, we'll hear from Jean Scalia, who is a partner in the Washington office of Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, where he's co-chairman of the firm's labor, labor and Environmental Practice Group. He previously served as solicitor of the U.S. Department of Labor, and that's the department's principal legal officer with responsibility for all the Labor Department's litigation. 
He's also handled a range of appellate and regulatory matters with particular concentration in litigation involving federal administrative rulemaking, and he will also share some of his insights from, from that with us. So without further ado, I will turn things over to Ambassador Gray. So thank you for um, this opportunity and the introduction. Uh, Cost-benefit analysis started formally uh, back in 1980 when, uh, 1981, when Reagan got elected, set up the Task Force on Regulatory Relief, and approved the uh, Executive Order 12291, which became 12866 with that much change. It's been basically the same throughout the uh, years since its adoption, uh, which requires cost-benefit analysis for any major rule. And it's, it's subject to... Um, two, at least two serious um, vulnerabilities. One is it's not, um, as Susan pointed out, reviewable um, in, the, in the courts. Um, the president can't cre create jurisdiction for executive orders. He might talk like he does, but he can't. And as a result, um, there's a lot of gaming that goes on and a lot of uh, games played with uh, inside the executive branch. And uh, those rules and those games are, I think, fairly well understood. I want to cover them a little bit, but then I want to go further and say, you know, what would happen if um, these uh, judicial review provisions were extended to uh, all rules, not just independent agency rules, but all executive branch agency rules, where um, a cost-benefit requirement is not already in the statute, which in some cases it is, and see what that would do. And I think that <coughs> Gene Scalia is going to go through what help that adds, um, uh, what, what, what problems it causes, it, it solves. And so I'm going to leave that discussion to him. He's been involved in some of the leading cases uh, and knows as much or more than perhaps anybody in the city. Um, and I want to end with a discussion of what, what is really the source, source of all the difficulty, um, principal source, which is the large amount of delegation to, um, uh, to uh, regulatory agencies. Um, the way cost-benefit can be gamed internally inside the executive branch, the typical way to do it is to claim co-benefits from, um, from related programs that are going to happen anyway. In some cases, they're claiming co-benefits from reductions that are below uh, a requirement that already exists, and there isn't necessarily a linear, linear response ratio all the way down to zero. Um, in the Section 111D uh, proceeding, for example, um, which is pending uh, now, and, and we're going to hear about it very soon uh, from the court, uh, the Supreme Court, the um, case is claiming most of its benefits from PM reduction. That's a co. It happens to coincide along with the, the um, other reduction of the CO2 reductions that are the target of 111D. And these CO2 reductions, um, these excuse me, these fine particle reductions are. <coughs> are lower than the standard that the government has set for that 
pollutant, and the government has refused to go lower because they say there's no evidence of harm. So why, if there's no evidence of harm to, to excuse or, or to uh, support a lower, uh, a lower standard, how can you count those benefits below that standard as co-benefits of equal stature? And furthermore, of course, uh, Section 111D prohibits one, uh, the agency under that section from using it to regulate a, a substance which is already subject to a national standard, which the largest co-benefit is already subject to a national standard. So if the agency can't regulate PM, how can it count PM, therefore, as a, as a, as a, as a co as a co-benefit, um, really a, a, a lot of difficulties. And counting the global benefits of the, of the, of the, of the CO2 reductions, the global warming reductions, counting the, the global benefits of the reductions as benefits to Americans is gilding the lily uh, a bit. So we have those difficulties, and um, the only way to straighten them out, ultimately, uh, I think, is to get a new president and uh, in the long term to have it be subject to uh, judicial review uh, in the courts. Um, the, the question of, of, of deference and, and using cost-benefit as, as a constraint on the agency um, has been kicked around before, and it's, and it's a highly potent weapon. Um, it has not yet obviously been adopted because it's not available uh, for most uh, agencies and most uh, laws. But the law does say, the case law does say, that even if, if cost-benefit per se doesn't apply, an agency must be found to be regulating a significant risk. Not a de minimis risk, but a significant risk. And a lot of, a lot of risks that are being regulated are not significant. Some of the benefits that are touted, for example, um, that were touted last time for a very, very tight ozone standard were described, which was pulled back, were described as highly speculative. And I do not believe anyone can argue that a highly speculative benefit can be considered um, a significant uh, a policy uh, benefit. A, be an answer to a significant risk. Um, this has sort of been missed in the, in the fog of war, this requirement that there be a significant uh, risk addressed. Uh, and as, um, as Judge Williams said in one case, I think the Michigan case, a cross-state pollution case, um, he said, you know, citing Breyer and, uh, um, and others, at NYU Law School, uh, 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 Stewart, Professor Stewart, if you have um, if you have a, a, a significance requirement, how can you possibly determine significance without looking at cost? So, uh, even if you don't have a cost benefit form, formal requirement, you do have in the law to protect against over delegation to put up a halt to some, um, uh, to, 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 to put up at least a floor on agency uh, um, runaway action, um, some sort of limiting principle. Uh, that principle can stop a lot of damage from being done. 
And the advantage of this is that when you get into a case where you say, oh, the delegation is too broad and there needs to be some constraint, and the constraint should be uh, showing that what you're doing is, is, is addressing a significant risk, uh, that decision is not for the, for the agency to make or to interpret subject to Chevron deference. That's a decision which the Supreme Court has made clear is a decision that court makes. So um, a significant risk, questions of delegation, trump deference. And deference has become very popular now as a source of huge difficulty, rightfully so. But I want to point out that it's not too difficult to remedy it if you understand what the rules are that you have to have a significant risk. Otherwise, you're you're getting into non-delegation territory, and when the court makes that decision, it's making it on its own. It does not have to defer. It owes no deference to the agency interpretation whatsoever. So I hope people will keep that in mind uh, in this uh, panel discussion as it unfolds and as uh, uh, Scalia tells us about his cases where, um, thanks to an internal provision of the statute, as in the Business Roundtable SEC case, there was a cost-benefit requirement um, it did go to court. The argument against it has always been, oh, it's going to clog the courts. Uh, the liberals make it's going to clog the courts, and oh my gosh, oh my gosh, wring your hands, wring your hands, we'll never get any rags out. Well, the D.C. Circuit has the lowest caseload of any uh, appellate court in America, and it can certainly handle it. <laughs> okay. Um, next, we'll hear from Dr. Richard Morgenstern from Resources for the Future. Thank you, Susan, and thank you for the invitation. It is a pleasure to be here, and it's a pleasure to follow my friend, uh, Boyden Gray, who is also a member of the RFF board, I would point out. Um, so I am going to try to uh, touch on, I'm going to make four points, two of them really briefly, and two of them a little longer. Uh, the first point is that while, as Boyden said, uh, the executive orders are widely accepted, uh, there still are major differences that you can actually see across party lines. And I'm going to talk about what those are. I'm going to come back to that. The second point is that there are ways to improve uh, RIAs. There's no question about it. And Boyden mentioned two points, which is the potential for double counting and the consideration of speculative benefits. Uh, there are others, but I will try to address both of those. The two points I'm just going to hurriedly say, because Susan and I talked about it earlier, uh, and she thinks I have something to, uh, some value in what I might say. Uh, one point is that um, how do you deal with jobs issues, jobs and regulation? And the short answer in that, it's a, it's a long story, but the short answer is the focus heretofore has been on what's going on within the firm or within the industry. As a, result to, as a result of regulation. And there's a lot of complex factors going on. There are demand effects, cost effects, factor substitution effects, all that's true. Okay, very hard to measure, but it's true. It's also true that there are uh, impacts outside of the firm and outside of the industry. Okay, and uh, if you were gonna really think about this problem rigorously, you would think about it in the general equilibrium framework, because that's really what the story is. The regulation changes a lot of things in the firm, in the industry, and then causes secondary effects. No one's really mastered all that yet, uh, quantitatively. The models are, are pretty far from doing that. So some people have advocated, well, there are these obvious welfare losses 
to people who do lose jobs in the industry, let's count those, okay? And that's, a, that's close to being quantifiable in a credible way, but um, it leaves out a lot of things, as I say, that are kind of beyond the boundaries of, of the initial firm. So my own judgment, which is just my opinion, is that these factors, to the best we can quantify them, should be included in the analyses, kind of as they are now. Now, you, you can critique the way they're done, but you know, the, the notion of doing them is, is correct. You probably shouldn't put, try to put the welfare effects into the cost-benefit framework, because that's kind of pushing the envelope beyond where we are now. That's my one quick point. My other quick point is, how about retrospective analysis of regulation? Well, I'm doing that. I've done it for a while. I'm doing a lot of it now. And the question is, is it a good idea? Well, obviously, it's a no-brainer to do it, okay? Uh, the reason why there isn't more of it is it's actually quite tough to get the information, and it's really hard to do, and there's not much incentive for anyone to do it. The agencies don't really have an incentive to do it because it makes them look bad, potentially. And outsiders, uh, other than researchers who are, you know, uh, trying to, independent researchers are, are, some of them are gonna get to this as I'm getting to it, but it's a struggle. And I know Boyden has said in other contexts that uh, there should be an outside entity, maybe CBO, and, or maybe some research, outside research group. And I, I think that's the only way to do it, by some independent effort. I'm not quite sure which one, but uh, it ought to be done, and it ought to be done independently. But that's a longer story. Okay, so let's come to my two big points. Uh, what, um, what are the differences that one can observe be, uh, between Democrats and Republicans, and how would you ever measure that in any kind of serious way? Well, uh, my colleague at RFF, Art Frost, who many of you know, who served at OMB for a long time, uh, Art uh, and I uh, were kind of struggling over this issue, and we uh, stumbled on a very simple notion. There is a document that you probably all know about called the Annual Report to Congress on the Benefits and Costs of regu Regulation that Susan was the uh, leader of for a couple of years, okay? Uh, in fact, uh, these reports have been issued by every OIRA administrator uh, since 1997. And when we did our study, there were 15 of them that were out there through 2012 when we had the data. So we pretty carefully uh, went through the text and looked for areas of emphasis and uh, where they, points they made, points they uh, were silent on or the emphases they put on it. We had a research assistant conduct sort of a content analysis of these 15 documents. And through all that, we deciphered six differences that I'm gonna try to lay out for you quickly. Number one, there seems to be a difference between Democrats and Republicans on the oversight role of OMB. That's pretty clear. And you know, Republicans sort of embrace the trust but verify model, uh, okay, <laughs> whereas Democrats say, well, um, transparency is what you need. And we'll use the fact that we put a lot of information out there uh, and we'll trust people to do the right thing and we'll trust the forces of open society to, to kind of rein in, uh, despite the constraints that there are, uh, rein in uh, any excesses. That's one difference. Second difference is the emphasis on the monetization of benefits. Um, d Democrats are, want to monetize a lot of hard to grasp issues ecological benefits being one. And, um, you know, Republicans are more rigorous, if you want to say, or more, have a higher bar for uh, saying what constitutes legitimate uh, effort to monetize these things. And so Republicans seem happier to put these in the category of non-monetized or uncounted or, you know, uncounted or you know, non-quantified or non-monetized benefits. Democrats want to get them above the line. So that's a, a certain tension. 
A third tension is on costs, okay, and the scope of the costs considered. And what you see is that um, basically Democrats, uh, you know, consider a broad set of costs, but Republicans tend to put more emphasis on, for example, small business impacts. And that's a, a clear difference. And there's some other categories. Um, behavioral economics, Democrats like to use behavioral economics and like to put a lot of uh, information out there. Republicans are a little more skeptical. Uh, intergenerational benefits, uh, Democrats seem to be happy to uh, weight the preferences of future generations more than Republicans who want to impose uh, a discount rate more comparable to uh, one that would apply to other investments in our society. Uh, and finally, the broader uh, economic impacts of regulation. And um, I would say that Democrats tend to focus on uh, the positive link between regulation and overall well-being in society, and Republicans are focused more on the trade-offs in terms of lost jobs, things like that. So these are the, the six points that we glean from this. The overall point, which I perhaps should have made at the outset, is that you know there's a lot of agreement, okay? And these six points aren't meant to say that there's uh, not a lot of agreement. The, I would say, and Art and I said in this paper, that the, uh, that the executive orders have introduced a framework and an approach that clearly is followed by both parties, at least up to some point. And these are the kind of differences that we teased out. How many minutes do I have? Um, three. Three. Yeah. All right, it's gonna be <laughs> tough. Okay, so my last point that I wanted to make is, uh, I did a, a paper a couple years ago uh, that actually reached out to the left. Okay, and some of you may know who Lisa Heinzerling is, and this is before she became an assistant administrator at the EPA. She's a Georgetown law professor, and she was a co-author of a book which is called Priceless, okay, and it was a pretty heavy attack on benefit-cost analysis. And my colleague, Winston Harrington, and I kind of said in some conversations with Lisa, look, you know, maybe there's some middle ground here. Maybe we can find some area where, you know, we could bring you on the boat and maybe we could make this a little more uh, attractive. And, 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 and we came up with a number of topics. And let me try, I'm not gonna go through all of them, but I'll, I'll mention a couple. A couple of them relate to Boyden's points. Um, one of them is that, um, well, a couple of obvious points, that you know, some of these RIAs, and we, we didn't do this based on philosophy. We did this based on actually studying specific RIAs. We had like work groups that studied RIAs, and we a debate, and it was, it, was not, it was not based on the theory, it was based on the practice. And we chose a number of that. So, uh, you know, a couple of points. One, one of them is that alternative options were really not considered in several of the RIAs that we looked at. They just picked an option and then kind of were basically justifying it as opposed to considering alternatives. Um, a point that, that Boyden made about double counting uh, we labeled the same phenomenon with a different title, but it's kind of the same thing, which is the proper baseline, okay? And that you really need to have a transparent and credible baseline, and one that speaks to the relevant issues. And if you don't, there is certainly the potential for double counting. Uh, there are other, other problems as well. Um, we also suggested that there be some kind of checklist that would be put forward for the key elements, not every element that's ever written down about what an RIA ought to be, but there ought to be some consensus on some minimal stuff, and that the agency ought to be obliged to say why they didn't include certain of those key elements in their RIA. And just blasting through it, as some of these RIAs do, it seems kind of meaningless. Um, 
let's see. Uh, we also um, talked about um, the topic we call relevance to agency decision making. So some of these things have devote a huge amount of effort to establishing precision over really small categories of issues. And one of them I remember had like just an unbelievable amount of effort was went, went to get a precise estimate on a pretty small category. When in fact, huge categories uh, were ignored and they would just say, well, we don't know how to deal with this. And I think that's, that's a legitimate claim that people make that there ought to be some balance, there ought to be some more strategic consideration of what's going on in these things. And some of these RIAs clearly miss that. Um, on the treatment of, uh, to Boyden's point about speculative benefits, uh, I think uh, Lisa and, and Winston and I kind of agreed that there ought to be a quicker uh, elevation of um, scientific consensus, a quicker move towards scientific consensus for new research. So what happens now is, you know, uh, some of this stuff just gets buried, it never comes in, and it's always called speculative. Well, okay, one reason it's speculative, it hasn't been adequately reviewed. And you ought to have an uh, SAB in the case of EPA, but other agencies have uh, NAS, whatever you want. There'll be some procedure for taking these categories of benefits and pushing them more quickly, more strategically, through the review process. So they actually, you know, we can't stand up here and make judgments. We can't make, say, well, this is too speculative or not. There ought to be a group of scientists who make that judgment. And so that's, I think, the, the, the point. Um, okay, I'll stop there. Those are sort of my, my key points. Maybe more in q &A. Yeah, there's it's more in q &A. Exactly. It's fascinating. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> okay, next we'll hear from Professor Michael Livermore. Uh, well, thanks so much, and I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here, of course. Um, so, uh, so Dick's paper was wonderful, and I, I, I thought it did a, such a great job of kind of showing some of the systematic differences between the political parties on uh, cost-benefit analysis methodologies, um, and of course showing the really that there's a lot of uh, overlap and agreement. I mean, we're actually disagreeing along a really small portion of like all of ideological space, right? We've portioned out a really tiny piece of it and we fight about it. Um, but, and that's, that's fine. Um, on the, um, with respect to some of the structural questions around executive review, um, there's actually less consistency with respect to the two parties. Um, you know, many of the ideas that are floated that we'll talk about today, that are talked about in the broader public discourse on these issues have been around for some time. We've actually been talking about more or less the same things for a generation. Um, and preferences over these structural policies have a tendency to track the fate of the political parties, right? So the party that's in the White House tends to love executive power, and the party that's out of the White House tends to spend a lot of time talking about executive overreach. And we've just seen this as a cycle that um, has happened uh, over the years. So I, I, I went through and I had actually dug up something that, um, that I found in another research project that I thought kind of speaks nicely to this, um, to this kind of cycle of opinion over these structural questions. It's a piece by Justice Scalia, writing before he was Justice Scalia. Um, he was an editor at Regulation Magazine at the time. This is 1981, shortly after Ronald Reagan had been uh, elected uh, in office. And so he writes, basically, that these efforts to what he refers to enfeeble the executive, um, which the Republican Party, at least some portion of the Republican Party, embraced at the uh, time, was a terrible idea, because now they were in the White House, and they needed to use the power uh, that they had in order to um, 
vindicate their preferences and carry out what they saw to be an electoral mandate at the time. Um, so he, he writes that Republicans in Congress seem perversely unaware that the accursed unelected officials downtown are now their unelected officials, uh, presumably seeking to move things in their desired direction, and that every curtailment of desirable agency discretion obstructs principally departure from a democratic produced pro-regulatory status quo. Their attitude promises to do major harm to the drive for genuine regulatory reform. Okay, so that's the general principle. He goes through and identifies several policies. One is an amendment in Congress to undo deference to agencies, right? so that instruct courts to be less deferential. He says this is a terrible idea. Uh, it, doesn't just, it does not eliminate the authority. It merely transfers it to federal courts, which at the operative level will be dominated by liberal Democrats for their foreseeable future. Um, so that's, that's on agency discretion. He does another on uh, an effort to beef up the rulemaking process, make it more difficult. And he says, again, this isn't a good idea because it's going to make it difficult to change the status quo. Uh, he talks about the legislative veto, which is no longer really, uh, oper you know, it's not constitutional under, under Chada, but we have something similar that gets floated in the Reins Act. And he basically says, again, uh, in, in effect, you're going to make it, you're going to lock in the status quo, you're going to make it more difficult to enact reforms. He, talks about statutory requirements of cost-benefit analysis. Right? So is that a good idea? Should we have a statutory requirement of cost-benefit analysis? And so he says, this is again not a good idea, because a rule um, that merely undoes a pre-existing rule also has costs and benefits. Okay? So what you would be doing by enacting the statutory requirement and making it subject to judicial review is extant regulation will be accorded a sort of presumptive validity, and you're going to lock in that status quo. And so ultimately, all this stuff, when you kind of take it together, these, and this is just a, this is a quote, executive enfeebling measures such as those discussed above do not specifically deter regulation. What they deter is change. And then he goes on to say, regulatory reformers who do not recognize this fact will be scoring points for the other team. Okay, so that's Justice Scalia circa 1981. So how do we take, so now basically everyone's views about this stuff are flipped, right? So Republicans now hold the opposite views, Democrats now are in favor of executive reform. At the time, of course, in 1981, the Democrats were like, ah, post-claw back executive power as much as possible. We don't want the White House to have influence. So, all right, so what do we, what, what, how do we, what, what do we do with this? So, um, so one question is, is this just the way it is? Is it always going to be that people will just cycle back and forth depending on whether they're in and out of the White House? Or can we try to abstract this out from our personal substantive preferences of the moment and to kind of think about this in some kind of general way? So here are what I think are to be the, the more general questions. So one is, how responsive do we want agencies to be to elections? I mean, this is a question that we have faced in the country for hundreds of years, really. I mean, since there's been... Um, you know, anything that looks like an executive state, which Jeremy Shaw says is basically since the time of the founding. Um, and that's just a hard question, because on the one hand, we, our democracy, we think agencies ought to be responsive to elections, but when we're not, when we lost the last election, we don't want it to be all that responsive to elections, and we might think that um, there's some professionalism or other consistency reasons that we want agencies to have some kind of, um, you know, similarity over time. If if agencies aren't going to just be responsive to elections, then what do we want them to be responsive to? What are some of the options? Okay, thank you, Susan. Um, okay, well, what are the options? So one option that gets kicked around is, well, they should be responsive to the law. That's what they should do. We should just have agencies that are responsive to the law. Sounds nice. 
I mean, certainly to the extent that the law is clear and unambiguous and not vague, then obviously they ought to be uh, responsive to the law. But I'm kind of a believer in what Jerry Mishaw refers to as the, which is a, a different kind of law, but the law of the conservation of agency discretion. Okay, it's almost like a principle of the state. And the idea is that, yes, you can write more detailed statutes, but all you do is kind of slosh around discretion. Maybe you move it from the rule makers to the adjudicators. Maybe you move it from the adjudicators to the enforcers. Maybe you move it from one kind of statutory question to another kind of statutory question, from a legal question to a scientific question, from a scientific question to an economic question. But all you're doing is sloshing around discretion within administrative agencies rather than actually reducing the aggregate amount of discretion that exists, exists within the executive. So if we accept that to be true, then just saying the law is what agencies should be responsive to isn't really providing us with, a, with any kind of adequate uh, response. What we want to do is perhaps use law in order to structure agency discretion in ways that we think might lead to beneficial outcomes, but just the law itself is not going to uh, be a, a final answer for us. Um, another option would be we want agencies to be responsive to professional norms some level that's what we have with the cost-benefit analysis uh, um, requirement. What we basically do is we say agencies, you should do a cost-benefit analysis, and more or less what agency, uh, administrations from both political parties have done is kept their use of cost-benefit analysis within broadly acceptable norms within the economics profession. Um, and that's, so now there's going to be some space there, right? Um, it's not like the economics profession agrees about everything. You get 10 economists in a room, you get 10,000 uh, opinions about different things, right? But within that space, um, you know, the parties are going to disagree, but they're going to keep it within that space. We're going to keep it within uh, those professional norms. Um, that's nice. You know, that might be a good thing if you agree with the professional norms, right? So folks like Lisa Heinz Link, folks on the right who are more libertarian oriented do not agree with the professional norms, do not agree with, for example, that what government should do, be doing is at, uh, maximizing aggregate welfare. Not everyone agrees with that proposition. Maybe we should be protecting individual liberty instead. Um, so, so there's some disagreement even about whether the professional norms are right, and of course the professional norms don't provide us with the ultimate answers to a lot of questions. There's still a lot of value questions, behavioral economics, should we be doing that? It's a technical question, it's also a value question. Should we be um, you know, giving more or less weight to future generations? It's a technical question, kind of, there are technical elements to it, but there are also value uh, elements as well. And then, um, you know, there are questions about uh, doing what kind of elections do we want agencies to be responsive to? Do we want them to be responsive to presidential, national elections, or more like congressional elections? This is an al allocation of power between uh, the, the branches, um, but it has a normative component to it. And, you know, I tend to think presidential elections are more uh, representative, um, there's more voters, but, you know, people can disagree about that. And if you think congressional elections are more representative or more de democratic in some way, maybe um, agencies should be more responsive to Congress instead of the president. Okay, so the final uh, issue that I want to address very quickly is about the role of OIRA in all of this. Do we like OIRA? Do we not like OIRA? Should we replace OIRA? Should we get rid of it? Uh, should we replace it by some independent body? So, so my view is that the best way to think about what OIRA's role is, is to basically so serve as a moderator, uh, or a moderating influence, I should say, uh, over uh, executive discretion, okay? So OIRA is a generalist agency, so it's less inclined to get captured by any specific interest group because there's lots of different interests that have um, business before OIRA. Um, that includes just interest groups proper or also, and also ideologically charged activists within a party 
within a party base. Okay, and so OIR is less likely to get captured by that. And I think if you look at administrations from both parties, you see that in Democratic administrations, OIR tends to pull things a little bit to the to the right, and in Republican administration, OIR tends to pull things a little bit to the left, uh, ultimately ending up with a more moderate uh, uh, set of outcomes. And I think that's ultimately a good thing. I think that role can only function when OIRA is in the executive, uh, in the um, executive office of the president and uh, not as an independent reviewer because an independent, my view is that an independent reviewer can't have that kind of political influence within the White House that is necessary in, uh, in order to actually influence outcomes. If you actually take that body and put it outside the White House, unless you gave it a, a huge hammer, uh, which I don't think that Congress will ever do, uh, it's actually not, it's going to be less influential at actually influencing outcomes. So with that, I will uh, end and I look forward to the continued conversation. Thank you very much, Michael. Okay, our, our final speaker will, will be um, Mr. Eugene Scalia. Thank you. I want to thank Michael. I think we all should for that reminder of, of, of what a wiser man Justice Scalia has become <laughs> compared to his youthful days as an academic. Um, I, I'm going to uh, focus my remarks on a series of cases here in the District of Columbia concerning uh, cost-benefit analyses as performed by financial regulatory agencies. Uh, there have been a series of decisions adverse to the SEC and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Those have been characterized by some commenters as establishing an impossibly high bar for cost-benefit analysis by regulatory agencies, and indeed some commenters have said that uh, financial regulators are particularly uh, challenged and unsuited to engage in cost-benefit analysis. Uh, so I, I disagree with both of those propositions, and indeed I believe these cases uh, reflect very fundamental and glaring errors that were committed by the agencies. And I think the statutory duty that those agencies had to consider the economic impacts of their actions uh, had the capacity and, 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 and had the effect in these cases of improving the caliber of their decision making and were statutory requirements that the courts were uh, amply able to uh, apply effectively. So let me start uh, with the first of these cases. It was a, uh, uh, a rule by the SEC that required that uh, mutual funds have a, uh, a chairman who uh, was independent of the so-called advisor that really sets up the mutual fund. The advisor is a separate entity. The mutual fund has a board of directors. And the rule was that uh, it could no longer be somebody with the advisor who chaired the board, uh, had to be independent. Likewise, 75% of the directors uh, also had to be independent of the advisor under this rule. Um, this was the first SEC uh, rulemaking that I got involved in. And uh, the SEC has a statutory duty to consider the effects of its rules on efficiency, competition, and capital formation. Those are the statutory terms. I'd, I'd done OSHA rulemakings. I'd done wage-hour rulemakings. So I got hired for this. I went and I looked at the record. And, uh, and, and a couple things struck me. First, uh, the cost-benefit analysis that uh, the SEC had performed, despite its statutory mandate, took about one page in the Federal Register. Uh, it was paper thin. Uh, and the comments uh, barely contained any uh, cost-benefit analysis, even though this was economic regulation on its terms, there was essentially no economic analysis. Even more remarkable, though, was the statement of the Republican chairman of the SEC when confronted with a single economic study that uh, disputed his recommendation. He said, and this is a virtual quote, um, cast the study aside, he said, 
Uh, there are no empirical studies that are worth much. You can do whatever you want with the numbers, end quote. And more or less on that basis, he just refused even to consider the economic study. So uh, we got this rule um, uh, remanded to the SEC. Uh, and uh, this case has been characterized as setting in a possibly high standard. Let me mention just a couple of the mistakes that the uh, SEC made in this case. One was that one consequence of not having a management chair of the board of directors was that the independent chair was likely to have to hire staff. Um, people involved in the mutual fund industry said these independent chairs, they're, you know, they've got other jobs. They, they're going to have to hire people to come in and help them do the work that's going to be required. That's going to impose costs on the funds, which can be passed on to the shareholders. It's a bad thing. The SEC, in adopting the rule, they said, first, yeah, we know those independent chairs, they're going to need staff, and we've made clear in our rule that they can't hire that staff that they're going to need. But as to the cost, they said, hey, now, hold on now. We're not requiring them to hire staff, so you can't saddle us with those costs that they're going to incur if they choose to hire staff. I mean, utterly arbitrary and capricious, right? They were adopting a rule that the record showed was going to require the hiring of staff as a practical matter. But because it wasn't a term of the rule, they refused to consider the impact on the fund shareholders. A second thing uh, that uh, occurred in that rulemaking was that one of the SEC uh, commissioners suggested that they consider instead simply requiring mutual funds to disclose whether or not they had an independent chair. If an independent chair leads to a better fund, uh, investors will recognize that, they'll uh, move their assets accordingly, why don't we just do that? Seemed like a very sensible proposal, uh, and the SEC altogether refused to consider it. Uh, that ended up being another basis on which this particular rule was invalidated. So what we're talking about here in one of these cases that's characterized as setting an impossibly high bar was um, some really elementary failings by the uh, SEC as it purported to discharge its statutory duties. Now, a second case, and the case that uh, Boyden mentioned it briefly, it's received the most attention, is the uh, so-called business roundtable case, which challenged an SEC rule uh, under which uh, public companies would be required to turn over their own proxy to uh, shareholders who wanted to put forward alternative candidates for uh, the board of directors. Uh, as I think most of you know, ordinarily, if you're a dissident shareholder want to put forward your own candidate, uh, you need to solicit proxies for yourself, do your own mailings. This would have permitted free riding by certain large, uh, in all circumstances, really institutional uh, investors. They could put their own candidate on the company's proxy. And, and the SEC's theory in adopting this rule was this will lead to a lot more disputed elections. That will make board members behave better because they'll feel less secure in their seats, and it'll give shareholders more choice and enable them to elect better people too. So that was the theory for the rule. In justifying the rule uh, and in doing the cost analysis, one thing the SEC said was, you, you got to understand, this mechanism that we're creating can't be used by just anybody. It's hard. It's hard to use. Uh, and so while commenters said there are going to be so many elections, it's going to be really costly, it's going to be against shareholders' interest, they said, no, no. Actually, um, they estimated there have been 68 uh, traditional proxy contests over the last year or so. They said, our rule will uh, only permit, uh, will result in about 51 annually. So pause and consider that. They're saying the benefit of this new rule is it will make it easier to challenge elections. But when they're forced to do their cost-benefit analysis, they say, now this thing's going to be so hard to use. Um, it, we're much better off with the current system, really. It, it's, it, it's much better for shareholders. Um, utterly arbitrary and capricious. Worse yet, um, that was their cost discussion. They get around to discussing benefits. 
What do they say buried in a footnote? They say one of the real benefits of this is the great frequency with which uh, shareholders will be able to put for their own alternate candidates. We estimate that 15% of American public companies will have disputed elections. Um, now, the DC Circuit characterized things like that as chairing, picking the evidence, and um, contradicting uh, the agency's own assertions in one place or another. It was absolutely right. And for the court to invalidate this rule on errors such as that was not to uh, put a very high standard to the, to the commission at all. The uh, last case that I wanted to mention very briefly is uh, a case, I see Rachel Brands here, uh, that she and I worked on uh, for the Chamber of Commerce and also for the American Petroleum Institute. It was a rule required by the Dodd-Frank Dodd Act uh, under which uh, oil companies were required to disclose uh, the contracts and revenue agreements they had with uh, countries uh, where, and, and other uh, uh, levels of government where they had leases and uh, exploration and extraction uh, activities and the like. And the idea was uh, you've got uh, some countries that are receiving huge payments from oil companies, uh, allegedly, and the leaders of those companies are keeping the revenues for themselves rather than uh, letting them flow down to the people. If there's disclosure of what they're getting, then I don't know, there'll be some sort of agitation within those countries that will cause the uh, leaders to share the revenues. Um, the uh, industry stepped forward and said, this is gonna be incredibly costly. It'll cost actually tens of billions of dollars because a lot of these countries prohibit uh, those disclosures. We will have to stop doing business with them. Uh, and they said, it's, it's just not clear what benefit at all is going to result from this because those countries are going to go do business with somebody else that's not a U.S. listed company and, and the disclosures are never going to happen anyway. And the SEC, it had now lost several cases on its cost-benefit analysis because it had been exaggerating the benefits and minimizing the cost. It, it had learned a lesson. So in its final rule, it said the following. It said, the benefits here are very unclear. We, we're not sure there are any. We don't know what they are. This was required by statute. The costs, they are through the roof, tens of billions of dollars. Um, and they called it a day, sat back, and considered this an effective cost-benefit analysis. Um, well, the, the suit here contended in part, well, given how high the costs were and how minimal the benefits were, the SEC could have used its authority to exempt certain countries from the requirements of the rule. We found four countries where contracts in those countries alone would result in 12 billion in losses to uh, US listed companies. We said exempt those companies, those countries at least, uh, from these requirements. They refused to consider that. They said uh, that's contrary to the spirit of the law. Uh, Judge Bates in the district court uh, rejected that contention as well as some of the other claims they'd made, um, saying that they did indeed have the discretion to fashion a, a less costly, less onerous rule. With that background, let me make some very quick observations about uh, these cases and reserve uh, uh, for the thoughts for the discussion. First, uh, as has been mentioned, these, uh, the uh, SEC and also the CFTC, who's had a couple uh, rules invalidated in part for deficient uh, treatment of the effects of its regulation, uh, are not subject to OIR review. I think it's clear they would have benefited from OIR review from uh, an external party more closely scrutinizing uh, their treatment of uh, economic analysis. Second, contrary to what some commentators have suggested, uh, as I've described some of the mistakes that were made to you, um, the court, the DC Circuit and in, uh, the district court in the extractive industries case was not establishing an impossibly high bar for the agencies. It was asking for relatively uh, basic uh, tasks under that statutory mandate. 
Third, uh, judicial review is possible. Um, the errors that I've described to you were uh, apparent to judges, uh, really apparent to anybody who looked at the record carefully, and are the kinds of things the courts are qualified to pass on. Um, and relatedly, uh, the exposure of these kinds of mistakes plainly has the ability to improve the rulemaking process. The SEC put forward its proxy access rule on the claim that it would make it much easier to contest uh, director elections, but then turned around and said, actually, this is going to be really, really hard to use. It should have examined that uh, uh, conflicting set of premises, and had it done so, it would have proceeded more effectively in the rulemaking. Um, a final related point there is the ability that cost-benefit analysis has to constrain agency discretion. Uh, there's a dispute now about uh, something called the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which has the authority to designate companies too big to fail. When you read its decisions, explaining its designation decisions, they are through and through ipsy-dixit uh, in circumstances where it's plain they could have deployed uh, what Michael described as generally accepted economic principles, uh, and they just simply declined to do so. So uh, cost-benefit analysis is certainly one tool available to constrain the agency's exercise of their discretion. Um, finally, uh, in the realm of uh, financial uh, rulemaking particularly, uh, to me, uh, it's, it's plain that while there are always challenges in cost-benefit analysis, th there's no reason they are uh, uh, so great in the uh, financial realm uh, that cost-benefit analysis should be dispensed with. On the contrary, uh, I would expect that in many respects it is easier for uh, regulations in that area to be subjected to cost-benefit analysis than in areas where you are weighing not money on one hand against money on the other hand, but instead uh, money against um, other types of costs or benefits. Um, and, and in fact, uh, financial regulation has as its premise that there are problems now in the financial system which will be enhanced by certain measures. And just as you must consider environmental effects when engaging in environmental regulation, it's plain that you must consider uh, financial consequences through economic analysis when engaged in financial regulation. So stop there and uh, look forward to our discussion. Thank you very much. Well, I look forward to the discussion too, and thank you to all the panelists for staying on time so that we actually have a little more than a half an hour for discussion. Before I, I actually have a lot of questions, but, and I'm sure people in the audience do, before any of us have anything to say, would any of you like to comment on each other's, anything each other said before we open questions up? Uh, one comment about, <coughs> um, intrigued Michael by your, uh, reference to the Elder Scalia's statement that why do you want to, if you've just taken the White House, fool around with deference and those doctrines when now you want the deference to undo the deference of the preceding administration. And uh, of course that's uh, true as a general matter, but, but my, my experience with the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, with all due respect to Richard, who never would be anybody's, uh, just anybody's bureaucrat, um, <laughs> that EPA is everybody's enemy, regardless of party. So. <laughs> Dick, do you have a comment to that, a response to that one? <laughs> um, all right, if we have questions, um, please come up to the mic and ask them. But while you do, I actually had several questions in advance, but this triggered so many more that I actually have different questions than I warned you that I might have. Um, in fact, I'd love to know what 
um, how people would respond to Michael's question about how responsive should agencies be to elections. Well, <clears throat> we just mentioned that just now. Uh, I think that's quite up to the, um, primarily to the President of the United States and this Congress can do a lot to shape by holding hearings and making its views known and exercising its, uh, its uh, such review of authorities it has and along with whatever um, uh, budget, little, little budget nuggets it wants to drop into appropriations bills. But um, elections should make, should make a difference. Uh, in 1980, it was fought not primarily, but certainly principally over the scope of regulation. That was one of the central two or three issues over which the um, election revolved. We could see the same thing develop this time around. Um, it's too early to tell, but we could see it. And Reagan won on the, on the heels of marvelous anecdotes about, about ridiculous regulation, and he deserved the chance to do what he wanted to do, and he never encountered any major resistance from uh, a Democratic Congress when he um, did what he did in the first, uh, first term. Yeah, I would uh, add to that. I, uh, I wouldn't suggest that the uh, officials within the agencies themselves uh, base their own decisions on election results, uh, but I think it's imperative that they follow the leadership of the president and, and, and the White House staff. So in that respect, uh, and I think that's Boyden's point, I think it's very important that the president lead uh, and that uh, regulatory agencies follow uh, that lead. Uh, now, some agencies uh, by statute are uh, independent, and that's a separate uh, debate that can be had. But even then, of course, it's important that uh, the president uh, uh, be mindful of his own or I'll stick with his own <laughs> priorities uh, in, in, in making appointments uh, to those agencies. Um, I, I will say, uh, I've wondered at times whether uh, presidents may have made it harder on themselves to regulate or deregulate by taking as much uh, uh, as close ownership over regulations as they do now compared to, say, pre-Reagan. Uh, reason being, uh, that the more uh, it's plain that the president owns a regulation, uh, the more uh, blowback the president might risk if the regulation proves to be unpopular. So I think there's an argument under which centralization of rulemaking may uh, uh, make rulemaking slower and more difficult, uh, even when uh, its consequence would, would, would be deregulatory, which I think in some extent was uh, uh, then Professor Scalia pointed uh, in the 1981 article. But I, uh, you do see at times where the president is taking a very heavy hand with the regulation, and I've stepped back and wondered, would, would the president have more time getting this through if uh, he weren't so firmly putting his imprimatur on it? I would add to maybe an earlier point, uh, whether EPA is everybody's enemy, okay? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm thinking about that for a minute. And um, it seems to me, and I hesitate to say this in front of a bunch of lawyers, but um, you know, uh, it would be my sense that Congress has given EPA probably broader authority than in the case of environmental issues, and it has in any other obvious example I can come up with, okay? And as a result, that gets EPA into a lot of, a lot of different places that 
uh, stir up problems. And so it may be true that it's everybody's enemy, but uh, it's inherently so by the way it's been created. It would be my non-lawyerly observation. Um, so just to answer my own question and respond to Dick. I mean, if, so I'm going to defend EPA, um, if, if only very briefly. I mean, if you were to poll the American public um, broadly, EPA is actually a fairly popular agency. Um, the kinds of things that EPA does are actually pretty popular. Um, but in terms of how responsive agency, our agency should be to, um, uh, to elections, one way I think of this in my lawyerly way is arbitrary and capricious review. Right? What should the bounds of arbitrary and capricious review be when a new president comes to town? And, and then in the you know, most important case, uh, or the you know, leading case in arbitrary and capricious review, State Farm, right? uh, then Chief Justice Rehnquist, uh, in a concurring opinion, talks about this issue. Like, you know, there's a new president, and new presidents ought to be able to uh, implement their policies, but they should be constricted in some way. They should have to provide public, this is what I refer to as public regarding reasons. They can't just come into office and say, hey, we're paying people off, or the president feels like doing this. The agency has to be able to construct some set of reasons that connect the policy to a br broader public purpose or to, um, to, the, to lawful authority. And so, um, you know, that's, but um, I think it's an important question to keep asking. Okay. Thank you. All right. So um, when you ask your question, tell us who you are and please state it in the form of a question. Of course. Lisette Garcia, FOIA Resource Center. Thank you so much for your remarks. Uh, I guess there's two points or questions. Uh, one, uh, I work in the area of the Freedom of Information Act. And there's been a lot of jury or judicial nullification to the extent that parts of the statute are not even enforced. So going back to your point about the balance of arbitrary and capricious, what do we do when the court itself doesn't enforce the laws, when it comes before them and there isn't a nexus and we, all our hard look standard just goes out the window? I mean, where else do we go? And the second is I'd like you to please address um, the new push by the administration to throw all regulation systems out of the, out the window, the public input process, in the name of uh, more open government because it's collaborative and mutually iterative. This, uh, this very week, the Administrative Conference of the United States published a paper explaining how, by non-lawyers, explaining how uh, the regulatory process was actually too slow for the executive and we should just throw it out and just, uh, it just doesn't address the needs as fast as we need to. So there's a fast track idea, so if you could, you know, and I'm thinking of U.S. Digital Service primarily and um, the 18F, and it comes out of the CFPB. I mean, that's how they operated, so thanks. Thank you. Well, if the courts are getting it wrong, you appeal or elect a new president. Uh, I think those are, those are your answers. Uh, the second question, I, I'm just not uh, familiar enough with at least the characterization of that ACUS uh, statement to respond. Yeah, I mean, one thing that should be noted is that ACUS is, uh, I mean, a lot of independent agencies are actually quite responsive to the, to the president, but ACUS is a pretty independent, independent agency as these bodies go. And so, um, oh yeah, I'm not familiar with the report, but I wouldn't necessarily attribute the stuff that ACUS says to the, to the White House. They might actually really disagree with the propositions. I'll just add to that that, and I don't know the report e either, even though I'm a public member of ACUS, and I'm, I'm going to look at it now. Um, <laughs> but, um, but it also isn't even an ACUS recommendation until um, the, the full ACUS. So the, the reports themselves don't even reflect ACUS's perspective necessarily.
Well, I mean, there are classic questions about how much process we want to have, right? And, and again, folks, you know, will, from different political perspectives, will disagree with that question. Um, it's hard to justify the current system. It's hard to justify any potential alternatives, really, because you could reduce the process, and then you're going to have problems with public. So you can increase the process, and then nothing ever gets done. And so it's not clear that we're at the optimal. It's not clear what the optimal is. Wayne Abernathy, American Bankers Association. Uh, I'm not a total skeptic when it comes to cost-benefit analysis, but it does seem to me that there's significant limits there. I was particularly involved, closely involved with the 96 Act that broadened the requirements on the uh, the SEC, but it seems the case that was one, it was because the SEC, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. They did such a lousy job of even trying to provide lip service to the cost-benefit analysis. It seems to me that if an agency at least puts on a face of trying to do something that looks like cost-benefit analysis, the judgment is all really with them. The courts are going to tend to, I think, defer to their judgment of how they weigh the different things. I'm wondering if perhaps the real value in cost-benefit analysis requirements comes when you have the head of an agency or the president who really believes in it and wants to use cost-benefit analysis as a reform tool to say, well, there's a lot of stuff that I don't like that was done by this agency that I inherited. And they didn't do cost-benefit analysis. I'm going to use that analysis to justify the reforms that I want to put in place. Isn't that where the real strength comes in? I'll, I'll give an initial response to that, and it may be that Boyden has some more thoughts about, you know, the presidential role particularly. Uh, you know, I, I think that in practice, what, what I've observed is that once the public, through their comments and, and potentially through litigation, uh, brought to the attention of the SEC uh, the errors uh, that it was making, uh, in its cost-benefit analyses uh, that uh, did force them to look uh, more closely at things. Uh, the rules that were challenged, uh, uh, most of them uh, were, were never adopted in any form, uh, and I would say in part because in going back and taking a closer look, it became evident that they were indeed going to be uh, challenging to sustain. Um, you know, I, I want to comment briefly about participation in rulemaking. It's, it's just critical. Um, what, uh, what these kinds of statutory requirements can do and what comments can do is force agencies to grapple with hard questions and to explain themselves. And the more they can be challenged to justify what's being done and to explain it, uh, either the more cogent they will become or, as I think happened in some of these cases, the more it will become evident the emperor wears no clothes, subjecting them to uh, vulnerability in court. So I think that the rulemaking process in that sense works well. Uh, it works especially well when the public participates in a very thoughtful way. Because as I tell my clients in rulemaking, it's often garbage in, garbage out. If you don't uh, participate in that process effectively, uh, then the quality of the rule deteriorates. With respect to um, the question about presidential leadership, I, no, no doubt that um, a president who cares uh, greatly about not burdening the economy with uh, unduly costly regulations is somebody who's going to move the needle uh, considerably in improving the, the quality of uh, regulations, and, that, and, and I do think that would have a greater effect than the threat of litigation uh, in the absence of that kind of leadership. I'd just add that um, 
you know, many of the financial agencies and high-tech agencies are, are so-called independent agencies. They weren't um, such a large part of the economy back in 1980, but they, they really are now. And having them be independent is um, really an anachronism, and, and it should be changed. And, you know, look at Obama and the FCC, he didn't treat it as an independent agency. And there's no actual legal constitutional reason for doing so uh, anyway. <coughs> Nevertheless, the, the, and, and the SEC doesn't even have uh, um, um, a for-cause um, limit on, on, on uh, f firing. Uh, SEC. The SEC was founded in between um, the two basic cases, Humphrey's executor, um, and when the SEC was formed, it was illegal to, 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 to constitute an independent agency. But people forget that, so it just becomes sort of habit that the SEC is independent, and that's kind of bizarre. But there it is. Um, don't forget that, that in addition to that, that, that part of electing a new president is you get new staffing, and it really is important who you, who you staff. And, um, and just to add one point, EPA, um, I think, has no doubt the broadest delegation of, of any agency except maybe the Fed, uh, but by the same token, it has the fewest political appointees, I think, per square bureaucrat. And um, <laughs> um, it's, it's really a struggle, and every, every White House has struggled with it. Every Democratic White House, except maybe the current one, has struggled with it along with Republican and when they arm EPA bureaucrats to go marauding around, that's, that, that doesn't make them very popular. And when they go there is a fair amount of variation that some of it may be related to party, to be sure. But frankly, some of it is just related to individuals. I mean, some individual agency leaders and some presidents who surround themselves with you know, people like Boyden, who are very strong-willed and interested in these issues and knowledgeable. Um, it's sort of quixotic. I mean, I could think of EPA administrators who, uh, some of whom, you know, are just really interested in cost-benefit analysis and economic analysis. And of course, in part, they're responding to the White House. There's no question about that. But I could think of others, even within the same administration, uh, same presidential administration, who are just, they're just ignorant about it or are not really interested and don't, don't pay much attention to it. So th there's a personal element here that I think, individual element, really, that you can't, uh, leave out of the conversation. Okay, we have two microphones, so I'm gonna to go to the back microphone and then back up to Paul. Well, thank, thank you. Uh, I'll address my question to the moderator because I know you're kind of a generalist and uh, have been looking across different elements of different industries. Uh, my family owns a small securities broker dealer and every year I'll comment on one or two rules coming either from the SEC or from FINRA. Now, most of my comments are on one issue, which is disproportionate impact on small business. And actually, we've had a very good track record. There are a lot of exemptions and alternatives for small business in, the, in financial regulation for securities. But I've, I've learned from uh, reading a particular SEC release I'm interested in about something called the Regulatory Flexibility Act in which the agencies are supposed to focus on this issue as a matter of law. It does seem rather a bit toothless 
and the definitions are a bit strange. The SEC did a hand-waving analysis on this thing, Consolidated Order Trail, that I'm interested in. Have you ever seen that legislation used to any good effect? <laughs> um, yes. Uh, so the Regulatory Flexibility Act does require agencies to look at disproportionate effects on small entities. And there is an office, um, the Small Business Office of Advocacy, whose mission it, whose job it is to, to defend that and, and, and work to enforce it. Um, so yes and no. So sometimes agencies just do a boilerplate, and agencies themselves, the agency head can designate whether or determine whether their regulation has an impact or not. And sometimes they'll make that determination and the Small Business Office of Advocacy says, that's not true, but it's the agency, under the act, it's the agency that makes that determination. I, I'm gonna defer to the lawyers, though, about whether there's been litigation that's been successful on that. So Briefa did make it, uh, you know, did allow courts to review that. Yeah, there, there's been successful litigation applying those requirements. I, my clients tend not to be small, so I'm not, <laughs> I don't read those cases very carefully, but certainly they exist. Um, we can talk afterwards. I, can, I have people you. I can put, connect you with. Paul. Yeah, thanks, you. It's an excellent panel. Uh, Paul Kaminar, and uh, speaking of ACUS, I'm a senior fellow of ACUS, and I want to ask an ACUS question to Jean. Uh, you and I were on the same committee talking about judicial review of, of agency rules. I was just curious with respect to your SEC case on mutual fund uh, the, you mentioned the point that the SEC did not consider the option of whether uh, funds can voluntarily disclose that they have an independent chair on the mutual fund uh, committee. My question to you is, uh, uh, was that something that was raised at the rulemaking level or just in the judicial review at, 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 in the courts? And if not, could it have been raised at the judicial review level? It uh, had been raised. Uh, at the commission level. Uh, in fact, one of the commissioners said, I have a better idea, why don't we do this? And my recollection is that uh, that commissioner's colleagues ignored him. Uh, as to the question whether it, it could properly have been raised in the first instance at uh, the court level, uh, you know, my view would be that uh, that alternative is sufficiently uh, obvious uh, and, 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 and I think arguably preferable that it ought to be legitimate to raise it at the court level, even if it had not been raised below, but that's a disputed issue. And uh, Paul was referring to uh, an ACUS recommendation that was debated uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, on uh, that topic, uh, not specific to that case, but more generally. Hi, Rob Hartshorn with the Madison Coalition. Uh, just as the states forced Congress to propose a Bill of Rights, what are your thoughts on the Regulation Freedom Amendment, which is backed by 500 state legislators, three governors, the American Farm Bureau, Mr. Gray, and the General Counsel of the RNC, which would require that Congress approve major new federal regulations? Thank you. It's a, con it's a proposed constitutional amendment. That's, that's just a question. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, is it a constitutional amendment? Well, if Boyden likes it, it must be good. <laughs> so it's, it's like a codification of the RAINS Act. That's what it is. The RAINS Act, yes. Okay. So, which was, so this morning, um, the majority leader mentioned the Congressional Review Act, and this would 
change the default of that. The Congressional Review Act is regulation goes into effect unless Congress votes to overturn it. And this would say Congress would need to vote to approve it, otherwise it doesn't go into effect. So uh, without getting too much in the substance of, of reins, um, one of the observations I, I always kind of thought was interesting about this debate about kind of um, the idea that agencies should propose to Congress for approval of regulations rather than propose regulations. Um, that's kind of how Europe works. Um, that's kind of how the European Parliament works. The, the, you have the Commission, the European kind of regulatory agencies, the European regulatory agencies then propose to the European Parliament uh, regulations and then it kind of goes through an up or down vote. Um, there's an amendment process. But um, the, I just think it's kind of interesting politically that many of the folks that kind of like these kind of constitutional um, or these kind of ideas like reins or this constitutional amendment, I wouldn't normally think of the same types of people that want to Europeanize the American constitutional system. So. Yeah, we, we talked about this briefly as we prepared for this panel. And, uh, you know, I haven't studied uh, this concept in detail and uh, read all the pros and cons on it. But the you know, basic concept is uh, that uh, Congress has now delegated vast discretion and authority to the agencies. And what if we uh, reverse that a bit by saying, fine, uh, the agencies in the first instance can deploy all their vaunted expertise to determine what the best thing is. Uh, but before it actually becomes law, let's make Congress come back into the picture and uh, take an up or down vote, uh, of course, subject to presidential um, veto as well. Uh, and that way, we get the input of uh, uh, agency expertise, which we're told is so valuable and that Congress lacks. But on the other hand, uh, we don't have Congress delegating uh, so much of what it's supposed to be doing to agencies. You know, that's the concept. I think it's a really uh, important concept. You know, one argument would be, well, Congress is so dysfunctional that it would never be able to act uh, as these regulations came to it. Um, I mean, to me, that, in a sense, is sort of giving up on democracy. Uh, and my hope would be that uh, Congress would, uh, when forced to, find a way to become functional again and to take up and deal with these uh, major regulatory questions rather than having them handled by agencies in the courts. George Pullen, I'm here as a citizen. I'm not representing anybody. Um, my, my question stems closely from the, the previous one. When we talk about mechanism for policy, it seems like BCA being more robust broadly is supported, but when we then get into the, the mechanisms underneath and we look at these uh, independent agencies and others who are set up under a, a premise not weighted like this panel, we have a weighting here of three to two for fairly even economists to lawyers, but the majority of these agencies have very, very small offices of analysts and economists. And so we're talking about and I'm curious to each of your opinions because, again, we have a good mix, your opinions on how we'd have to change the construction of these agencies to technocratic versus bureaucratic agencies so that you actually have a breadth of expertise so that you can have 10 economists in a room with 10,000 opinions to then come to the best middle answer versus many agencies now that might have one or two BCA personnel if they're lucky. Thank you. Well, one quick thought on that, and I'd love to know what Jean thinks, but the SEC has a huge staff of economists, and they're really quite accomplished economists, too, so I'm not sure that that's their constraint. I know when I was overseeing regulations, the Department of Homeland Security had, um, they were, I mean, they, they were doing an abysmal job of trying to do benefit cost analysis, and um, they had very few staff who could, hand, who could handle it, and they've, I think they've tried to beef that up. 
I mean, Markopoulos in his book, No One Would Listen, talks about the Bernie Madoff uh, debacle, obviously, but one of the things he points out is that you don't have applied economists performing the work of the uh, enforcement review, and so if we now extend it to a more broader view of BCA need to be more robust, uh, and again, applied economists doing that work, uh, they, they're definitely lacking according to, to his accounts anyway. So. The SEC uh, has hired a large num number of economists, so I think uh, Susan's right. They, they, may, they did not have that kind of staffing uh, at the outset of this series of cases that I've described, but they, they have increased their staffing. Uh, it's not going to work, though, uh, if the economists are not integrated into the actual decision-making process, too. If the way an agency is using its economic staff is simply to justify decisions already made, uh, that's not the uh, purpose, and that's not going to immunize uh, an ill-considered regulation from uh, judicial challenge. Yeah, I would second that, you know, um, second Gene's point. Uh, back in the mid-90s, uh, I did a count of the number of economists at EPA, or early 90s, and it was remarkably small. I mean, literally, uh, I don't know, I'm not going to say the number, but it was really small. And um, the agency, in fact, has hired a lot of economists since. Okay, and probably the number of, if you just count, the quantity of economists has probably tripled, I'll bet, since uh, in the last 20 years. But unless they're given the authority, as Gene says, uh, and the mandate, uh, it's really not going to achieve it. So it's kind of a necessary but not sufficient condition to, to have greater influence uh, for economics. Yeah, and, and just to kind of add uh, another agency to the mix is OIRA. Um, you know, OIRA's staffing is something that you have to worry about over time, and the number of economists, the qualifications of the economists at OIRA. So if you have really beefed up agencies that have substantial economics departments, um, and then you have a kind of thinned out OIRA with, um, you know, some economists, some public, you know, folks with public policy um, backgrounds, um, you can create an imbalance where OIRA is not in a great position to actually do the kind of needed substantive review of what uh, the agencies are up to. So you need to have, um, you know, a sufficient number of economists integrated into the actual decision making, but you've got to make sure that's counterbalanced with, you know, the, uh, oversight as well. Susan, do you, do you know uh, <coughs> how many um, employees OIRA has now, say, compared to uh, when we were uh, in the early 80s? I don't, actually. I just um, just asked for that information. I think it's about 55, and I think in the early 80s it was 100 or more than 100. So it has changed a lot. And that 55 includes, as Michael said, a lot of non-economists. We have just, um, I think, four minutes left, and I'm going to ask one question. Oh, um, I'll tell you my question. You can tell me whether yours is better. How about that? <laughs> Sounds so fair. My question as moderator is, um, is whether, since this is the congressional the focus of this whole conference is congressional oversight, is should Congress have a body that is able to, like an OIRA, that is able to oversee agencies? That is, not, <laughs> that is actually an idea I have supported in things I have written, so we are uh, in the same foxhole on that one. I'm Kevin Kosar of uh, the R Street Institute, just a couple blocks away, and actually this kind of ties into your question, which is some of the people I've talked to on the Hill have been saying, well, regulatory look back is not working as it should, and we may need to make it more robust. But then I've also heard the criticism of, well, regulatory look back is never going to work because methodologically, agencies can just methodology shop and pick the methodology that they want to get the results and be able to see, say, hey, this validates our regulatory result. So maybe we do need a CRO, right? 
Go ahead. Yeah, so are those do tie in together. Should, is, does Congress, Congress need one, and would it help with the retrospective review? I, I would agree with I think so. I think the CBO should do it, and I'm not even sure the CBO shouldn't do on really high cost legislation coming out of Congress mm -hmm. uh, a prospective mm -hmm. regulatory impact analysis on that, on that legislation. I mean, we knew Dodd-Frank was going to be a big deal. Um, it should have, um, and Obamacare was going to be a big deal. It, it both could have benefited from a cost-benefit review by the CBO. Um, yeah, I mean, again, just to draw the European comparison again, uh, Europe has an impact assessment board. They actually do cost-benefit analysis of, of regulation, of not just regulations, but because uh, all regulations are also le legislation, so they get uh, they look at legislation as well. I wouldn't personally put it in CBO just because I think CBO is good at what CBO does, and uh, regulatory cost-benefit analysis is very, very different from budget impact analysis. But just increasing Congress's analytic capacity to, um, you know, participate in these discussions seems like a no-brainer, seems like a very good idea. So I think the idea of independent review is important. On retrospective analysis, as I think a number of us have said, you really need to have an independent party. You can't have the administration do it, in, no matter which administration. So that's, that's a no-brainer. Um, it's also true that uh, in Europe, like I haven't been overly impressed mm -hmm. with the quality of the, uh, either the initial cost-benefit analysis or any oversight that's taken place in Europe. So uh, I, I kind of wouldn't jump at that model. Um, and I think it's hard for, I, I also should say, <laughs> disclosure, my first job in Washington was at CBO, okay? <laughs> and uh, CBO kind of struggles in many ways to sort of uh, make an impact on, on different issues. And uh, this would be a very different role for CBO, certainly if you did it prospectively. It would really put, uh, it would just be complicated for them and their staffing, a lot of things would have to change. Uh, and I just think it would need some thinking. Retrospectively, it's also complicated for them, but probably a little more doable. Uh, and I haven't given this a lot of thought, but what about uh, requiring uh, that at least certain rules sunset? And uh, for the rule to remain uh, in effect after that, there needs to be uh, an evaluation of how effective it was. and. Uh, and, and, and that readoption of the rule would uh, then be subject to judicial review. That would be another way of coming at it. And, 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 and you know, based on the remarks I made, I, I do have faith in the capacity of judicial review to at least uh, frequently, if not always when necessary, uh, frequently to call out and result in the invalidation of flawed rules. Well, join me in thanking the panel. I think this is very important.